Introducing the Two-Way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the Two-Way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the Two-Way for yourself at newbalance.com. Mike Roach from the State of Recruiting, and I want to welcome you guys into a special edition of a new series we'll be launching during this quarantine period. Uh, one of the, the more positive points, I think, of the quarantine is a lot of the collaboration that's been able to go on between myself and, and other members of the media. I've talked to a few other guys in our space, and uh, you know we've all kind of agreed, like, we're all in this together. Let's let's reach out and help each other out uh, as much as possible. So what we're really trying to do is is you know help each other in, in content creation. And so what we're bringing to you now is a new series I like to call Open Mic. And what it's going to be is basically just to sit down with some of the best guys in our industry uh, within the media, either in 24-7 or just covering Texas high school football. Uh, we're definitely going to start with 24-7, though, uh, because of our talented cast there. And, and there's no better person to start with than today's guest. I'm really excited to bring him on. So uh, without further ado, we'll get on to it. All right, and welcome to the first segment of Open Mic on the State of Recruiting Podcast. I am uh, pleased to bring on 24-7 Sports National uh, Recruiting Editor, uh, a man who patrols from Central California to Alaska, basically looking for recruits, and uh, a guy that I am really, uh, really happy to call a friend after we spent a weekend in Vegas together. It is the great Brandon Huffman. Brandon, thanks for joining me. Hey, good to have you. Good to be on here, Mike. Thank you. I, I can't even remember. Things are so crazy, I can't even remember if I'm being had or you're having me. Right. Well, that's the first thing I wanted to ask you. So you're in King County in Washington, right? Um, which is basically, from what I understand, ground zero for uh, COVID-19's landfall in America. How is everything going up there? I hope you and your family are staying safe. And, and what's it like up there? Yeah, you know, we are staying safe. It's been pretty fascinating just to watch. I mean, my wife and I snuck out of the house on Saturday to uh, take a hot date to the pharmacy to get some medicine. She just had a recent surgery, so she was going to get meds. And, you know, that was about how crazy it got. And, you know, just it took us 15 minutes to get where we needed to go, which normally takes us 30. There's nobody out in the roads. You know, all the, the after school activities my kids are involved with, they've all been canceled. My kids are home until the end of April. Um, it's been, you know, for me working from home, it's no real change. The only difference is I'm not going to events. You know, this weekend I'm supposed to be back in Vegas to go down for the Polynesian Combine. Uh, won't be doing that. You know, everything's just kind of on a standstill. But yeah, it's uh, be great to get this thing over and done with so everybody can kind of return back to normal life. Uh, but, you know, who knows where we're at. So we're just doing our part to stay in place and stay sheltered. Yeah, what are you guys doing to get through the uh, the quarantine? Anything you're watching or anything? I, I like to do that just so maybe our listeners get new show ideas or new new activity ideas. So I'm a big fan of the mafia genre. Um, about three weeks ago, Nick Rolovich, the new head coach of Washington State, 
tweeted a video called it the Coog Father. So that got me onto a little binge of watching The Godfather and Godfather 2 uh, and then Goodfellas again. But last week I just started the first season of The Making of the Mob on AMC and I binged all eight episodes of the New York series in one shot. This weekend I started Making of the Mob Chicago, got through four episodes already and then, you know, because I monopolized the television there's been some give and take where I started a series that my wife had read the book of on Hulu, Little Fires Everywhere, uh, and then watched some family movies with, with the kids. Uh, I got young young kids, I got high school age kids and everything in between, so we watched you know some depressing movies like Art of Racing in the Rain. We downloaded Onward since that got released uh, streaming right away. So there's been a lot of television watching, but it's I, I don't feel bad. Usually when I watch television, it's non-sports. I feel bad that I'm wasting my time. Now it's like we're just doing our part to to give you know some kind of attention to you know the digital streaming services. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, here's one I got for you. This is what my wife and I got into last night, and it was her idea, but. I found myself actually kind of liking it. Love is Blind on Netflix is a ridiculous, preposterous show, but it's incredibly entertaining. It's been hot to see that on. I haven't watched it, but I've seen it on Twitter. You know, that's where a lot of the shows that I, I don't watch seem to be discussed. And I sometimes feel like I'm really out of touch with what's popular. Like I admit, I never watched Game of Thrones. I've never been much of a sci-fi or a fantasy type guy. I've always been more of a historical war type and mafia type guy. But everything that I see on Twitter is people love is blind is getting a lot of buzz. So that might be something I need to check out at some point. I'll let I'll let you finish the analysis first. Yeah, it's a cheap thrill for sure. We're gonna we got through half the season last night. I expect to get through half the season tonight when my wife's work finally acquiesce and let her work from home because uh, we're in a we're in a shelter at home mandatory in Dallas County and Tarrant County here. So uh, you're a mafia guy. Surely you've seen Sopranos. Then come on now. Okay, I just wanted to make sure. Just wanted to make sure. Now would actually be a good time to watch Game of Thrones, and I like to tell everybody about Game of Thrones. Yeah, it's like dragons and stuff, and that's like the headline, but it's really a show about like just political moves, and uh, you know, it's it's based on the War of the Roses back in medieval times, and they just throw a little bit of fantasy stuff in there, but it's not, I wouldn't say that that stuff really dominates the show uh, at all, so I think I think you'd enjoy it. Um, let's, let's jump right into kind of you. Um, you're, like, you're... I'm going to say this, and you're going to deflect it because I know what kind of person you are. You're you're kind of a legend in this recruiting game, and and walking around a tournament in Las Vegas, anywhere west of, basically west of the Mississippi, uh, you will learn that. And um, walking around that seven-on-seven tournament in Vegas with you, it's like you couldn't go five feet without being stopped by somebody. How did you get into this business? What was your road to it? So it's funny. It actually started kind of... By luck, um, I first started with the old, old, old Rivals.com, the very first incarnation when Jim Heckman founded it uh, in 1998, writing for what was known at the time as CollegeFootballDigest.com. And I was at the time their Pac-10 correspondent. I just graduated from college. Um, I had been working in sports information while I was in college, had done some streaming for high school football in the, in the late 90s, um, you know, had gone to see quite a few high school football games in the Los Angeles area in 1996, 1997 when I was a stringer. Um, and this newfangled internet took off and I started writing covering college football for the Pac-10 and then the first dot-com bubble burst. And so I went and started writing for a website called fanstop.com 
and did that for about, oh, say two years as their managing editor for NCAA sports covering football and basketball. Uh, And it was actually in the spring of 2003, I was at UCLA for the press conference to introduce Ben Howland as their new head basketball coach. And when I was there, I ran into Tracy Pearson, who was the publisher of the UCLA football site. And on at that point, I think it was the insiders.com, um, which later became Scout. And I started covering UCLA and USC recruiting for two years and just was covering all the, the Southern California recruits that UCLA and USC was recruiting, uh, as well as some national recruits that UCLA and USC was recruiting. So in that very first class, I remember interviewing a running back out of the state of Texas who visited both UCLA and USC. Uh, he raved about his UCLA visit because he had some hostess that he loved. And then he raved about the USC visit because they obviously were running the ball. But they UCLA had just signed Maurice Jones-Drew with the class before. USC had signed Reggie Bush and I think it was Lindale White in that other class and that same class at USC so this kid ended up going to Oklahoma and he's still chugging along in the NFL sorry to, to bring him up on this podcast but <laughs> he, he's kind of one of those names that when people ask how long you've been doing it I say well the first class that and living in Seattle now at the time I was living in California I would say you know Adrian Peterson and Marshawn Lynch were my first class and you know both those guys are ancient but still chugging along in some way or capacity. So I started covering UCLA and USC recruiting for two years. And in 2005, I became the California and Nevada recruiting analyst. I covered all the players in the state. In 2007, I became the West manager at the time for scout.com. I stayed in that role for four years. And in 2011, I moved into the national recruiting analyst role at Scout. Did that till 2014 was the national was that was the director of recruiting for Scout in 2014. Then when Scout and 24/7 merged in 2017, uh, I came on as the national recruiting editor. So I've been I'm in my what would this be now my 18th recruiting class uh, since I started. If you count the current class, but yeah, I've been doing this for quite a bit of years now. Yeah, so. You obviously you had to mention an Oklahoma player there. Um, we'll get to some Texas players because you've shared uh, your experience with with a few former Texas players with me. But um, is there? Uh, we'll get into like who are the best recruits you ever saw. I like to do this. Who were like your favorite recruits you've covered? Like the guys that you just had that that special kind of bond with. Yeah, you know, there's been a lot more kind of in years past as you you know you start to see these guys a lot more with with there being more national events, more national showcases, um, with guys getting recruited earlier. You start to develop a relationship with these guys when they're freshmen in high school. You go to enough of their high school games, seven on seven tournaments, camps, you name it, over the course of four years, and you really develop a pretty good rapport with them. Uh, but I, you know, if I go back to kind of some of my my earlier days, I, you know, I got to say probably one of my all time favorite kids is a guy named Alteron Werner. Um, he ended up being an all three three time All Pac twelve player at UCLA. Went to the NFL um, and was a Pro Bowler with the Tennessee Titans. Later went on to the Bucks. Played for the Dolphins. Just recently retired, but one of the sharpest, smartest kids. And we, you know, I, I would have conversations with him. And I would hang up the phone thinking, man, I'm dumb when I talk to this kid. You know, he's a math major while being a three-time All-Pac-10 defensive back. And I got to know his dad really well <clears throat> during that time. So he, he was probably, you know, one of, one of my all-time favorites. Uh, just, you know, when you talk to him, there would be just a great conversation. He would he messaged me, gosh, probably <clears throat> – 
two two weeks after his first Pro Bowl birth, just thanking me for believing in him and you know writing about him when a lot of at the time UCLA hadn't even offered him. SC and UCLA weren't recruiting him, and at the time he was considering Stanford. And this was the Buddy Tevens, Walt Harris Stanford, not the Jim Harbaugh, David Shaw Stanford. When you if you consider Stanford, it wasn't good. Um, and he ultimately wanted to go to UCLA and. You know, I, I wrote about him a couple times. UCLA ended up offering him, and I think he his first game at UCLA as a true freshman he had a pick six and was in the starting lineup for the next four years. Uh, so, so he would be one that I, I would say, just in terms of like national guys that, that I think people, you know, nowadays they they you know they watch games, they they still talk with, and they they still remember. Um, you know, there's gosh, there, there's been. Quite a few. Jake Heaps, who was at one point the number one quarterback in the country, went to BYU, ultimately transferred to Kansas, and then ended up as a grad transfer at Miami. Um, another kid that always w- had a great relationship with, still talking now, he runs the Russell Wilson Quarterback Academy uh, in Seattle, and he's also uh, a local radio and, and television guy in Seattle. Uh, <clears throat> what I like about him is he was the number one quarterback in the country, and his career never played out that way. And he's worn it. He, you know, he's he, he basically accepts the fact that that's what his career is, and he's not one of those guys who's bitter and angry. And basically, you know, he he wears the fact that he didn't succeed like we would have expected him to. But he's a, a great guy. I still go and speak at his camps every so often. And uh, you know, th- those are probably two guys right off the top of my head that that would come to mind. Um, you know, and just in terms of the still having a relationship with those guys to this day as their careers are done. And there's a lot more that, I mean, as I'm thinking about it, I could probably name another 50, 60 guys I had a relationship with. There's a lot of guys that people love that I'm like, oh, well, I'm glad that he started to become a nice guy because he's kind of a turd in high school. <laughs> uh, but I don't want to put those guys on blast. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I always try to do it in terms of like a Mount Rushmore. Like if I could create a Mount Rushmore of my four favorites, it's always, it's probably rotates all the time and it's really hard. Uh, but yeah, I... So Texas and California have had a lot of crossover, weirdly. Um, you know, whether it be UCLA beating John McAvick's team 66-3 to or whatever, basically ushering in the Mac Brown era, or Texas winning a Rose Bowl over USC. Uh, a lot of weird things have happened between Texas and those West Coast schools. What do you think the perception is of Texas out there? Well, it, it's still, I mean, you got to remember, in, in Southern California, it's a USC-UCLA region. But when it comes to football, USC football is what people identify Southern California sports with. It's UCLA basketball, USC football. And even though, you know, it's been, shoot, 14 years since the, the legendary Rose Bowl, I mean, Texas could go 2-10 and 10 one year. Not saying they ever would, but they could go 2-10 and 10 one year. But in Southern California, they're revered more than, as an opponent, more than Alabama is, more than Notre Dame is, more than, you know, Michigan is. And those are probably the three schools that... USC has had the most games with in terms of in bowl games, in terms of in the regular season rally with Notre Dame, in terms of who's the greatest program of all time. You know, Texas was the the USC, the, the Pete Carroll dynasty ender, the the Reggie Bush beater. And so I, I think the perception of Texas is that they're an elite national program and they are. But I, I think in Southern California where you you know you have a very territorial 
state in a very territorial region like Southern California. And, you know, as far as Southern California is concerned, they think that the best football players come from Southern California. And they think the best football is played in Southern California. And that's not just at the high school level. That's at the collegiate level. That's at the national level. But there is a there's a high level of respect for Texas, largely based on one absolute classic college football game. Yeah, and I think the similarity there is, you know, people compare Austin to California a lot, same type of vibe. I think there has been a migration of Californians to Austin. And, like, that's what we found when, when Texas is landing kids out west, like, be it Jake Smith or Braden Lebrock or, uh, you know, who am I missing here, Chris Adamora or Brew McCoy when he rolled through there for a week. Um, you know, I mean, the, the things that we heard often was, hey, this is a lot like home. I think that's a, a constant uh, comparison, but I also think that, like you said, we also think the best football is played here in Texas, uh, both at the high school and, and the collegiate level. So, uh, a lot of similarities there. I would say, uh, you, you, so you're a you're a Ventura guy. Uh, mm-hmm. You've always told me about uh, the one your your one strongest link to Texas. Uh, so I'll let you open the floor on Blaine Irby and just tell me what you remember about uh, Blaine Irby's high school recruitment, him as a kid, all that. Well, actually, I have a different connection, too, that probably shouldn't be. My senior, my junior year, our opening game of my junior season was against Simi Valley High School and a senior receiver named Tom Herman. So we won that game in dramatic fashion, even though we shouldn't have. Um, and we always seemed to play Simi Valley. They always played us really tough, even though they weren't great. So that's that's one connection. But in terms of players that have been recruited by Texas. Yeah, Blaine Irby. So he played at St. Bonaventure High School, which when I was in high school, St. Bonaventure, it was kind of funny to see how they really grew as a program. When I was in high school, St. Bonaventure was one of four schools that used the stadium at our high school. There was our high school, Ventura High School. There was Buena High School. There was St. Bonaventure High School. And then there was Ventura College. And St. Bonaventure had fourth dibs on the stadium. So they would get the Saturday afternoon day game in the stadium. So we would go watch films after our Friday night game, go watch films, go watch St. Bonaventure play in the afternoon and just mock the fact that this little tiny private school was trying to play football. Well, over the next three or four years, they started to get really, really good. And then they kind of adapted the name. They were one of the first teams in Southern California to really expand their enrollment to not just be kids from Ventura from the city of Ventura, but from Ventura County. So they kind of took on the name St. Bonaventura County, and they got a running back named Lorenzo Booker. They had a receiver named Whitney Lewis, two super special players that, you know, neither their college careers quite ended up like they were supposed to, but at the time they were high-level recruits. Blaine Irby was part of the 2007 class. There was him. There was a, a DB named Mike Williams who had gone on to, to Michigan, who was also at St. Bonaventure. Uh, but Irby was one of the best tight ends that Ventura County had produced. And being a former high school tight end and being a tight end of the option offense, tight end's always been that one position that I've probably been the best, that's been my best position to, uh, to analyze and to evaluate. And Irby was kind of that, you know, that super physical inline blocker who was one of those rare types that could get out in the open field and, and catch passes and, you know, stretch the field. And he was pretty athletic, but for as big as he was, he moved better than I thought. See, in, in those days, if you were a tight, if you were a guy that big, you were probably going to play linebacker, uh, maybe even defensive end, if you could move like that. But he was kind of one of those first tight ends out west that, as big and physical he was, he still was, you know, pretty impressive in the open field. So he had a ton of offers. I, I remember 
John Mack at the time was the head coach, uh, legendary coach there at St. Bonaventure. I think they won six or seven section championships with, uh, with, with Coach Mack as their head coach. But Blaine Irby, you know, had all the Pac-12 schools. In it. And at that time, UCLA recruiting wasn't great. Carl Durrell didn't really have things going. But Pete Carroll really had things Sh- going. And shout Pete, out Colorado. Yeah, Colorado hiring Carl Durrell. You know, that's that was a hire. Uh, Pete Carroll at the time, it, we, the joke used to be in Southern California. Pete Carroll didn't recruit; he just evaluated. Because if USC wanted a kid from Southern California, USC got a kid from Southern California, and all they really had to do was make sure they evaluated the kid right, and there was no question they were going to get the kid. So. They didn't really recruit. They went in and said, hey, you have an offer from USC. They could have a kid that was committed to a Pac-12 school for nine months. And if USC came in on the night before signing, they basically said, you're going to be the 25th player in our 25-man class. You're going to be the fifth running back we bring in, even though you'll be the star running back on the school you committed to the second you step foot on campus. That kid would flip to USC. So Irby was one of those rare Southern California kids. And if you go back and you look at the 2007 class, there were two significant recruits in that class out in California that spurned USC. And, you know, one of them was Jimmy Clausen, who everybody thought was going to USC. He was an Oaks Christian kid, and then he ended up picking Notre Dame. He was down to USC and Notre Dame. And then Donovan Warren, who played at Long Beach Poly. And the feeling was that Donovan Warren was going to go to USC. He ended up going to Michigan. Ronald Johnson, who everybody from Detroit thought was going to Michigan, ended up going to USC. So Blaine Irby at the time, his decision to pick US, or to pick Texas over USC, in, who would offer him, was kind of ignored a bit because at that time, the bigger issue was Jimmy Clausen early spurned uh, USC, but then Donovan Warren spurned USC late. So at the time, even though it's still, you know, in retrospect, you look back, it's a big deal that he didn't end up signing with USC despite having an offer, being at St. Bonaventure, which had sent some players to USC. You know, Irby went to Texas. And it was kind of the joke was like, well, you know, at least Texas got another win in Southern California. Um, but it wasn't like they were really – raking in kids from the south line at that point you don't you, you would have thought they would have capitalized on that rose bowl win but at that point texas could recruit whoever they wanted in texas in the south and, and that area they didn't really need to come out west so when they did to beat usc for blander but that was kind of a significant win for them yeah i think I, the weird thing about Blaine Irby is I was I recall watching the Rice game the night he blew his knee out and it was it was one of those Willis McGahee type injuries you know where mm-hmm. you saw it and immediately you knew it was not good and Texas had had a pretty decent run of tight ends up until that point with uh, Bo Scaife and then Jermichael Finley and then right on to or trying to think yeah yeah right on to Blaine Irby. And the night, literally the night Irby blew out his knee, Texas couldn't find a tight end and really haven't been able to since that time. Now, they've they've had a little more production under Herman, but it's still, it's been like a cursed position. Um, you know, I think that Irby always had a, a reputation around the team. He even, I remember him coming back in his final year, he was having issues with drop foot and um, and things like that. And you could tell he was no longer the athlete he once was, but kind of turned into a blocking tight end and, and was known as one of the better dudes and teammates out there. Was that kind of his reputation around Ventura? Absolutely. And, you know, keep in mind, too, there was a lot of jealousy at the public schools in Ventura, in Boyne High School, at Ventura High School, with how good St. Bonaventure had been. 
And, you know, it's like, hey, those were our guys. And Vincent Bonaventure was in the same league with them. And so it made it even worse when they're losing these games 40 to nothing. It's the only private school. But some of the kids that played at Bonnie were kind of jerks. They, they were kind of turds. And in the early on, they had this arrogance. And but then never really amounted. They never really did much in the collegiate level. Irby was not like that. Like he was a kid you generally felt bad for. Not that I didn't feel bad for other kids that may have been injured, but like Irby was such a, a nice kid. And, you know, I had friends that were close to the St. Bonaventure program, guys that I grew up with that were part of, they just used to rave about him. John Mack always talked about what the competitor he was, but also what the team leader that he was and how the players really rallied around kind of you know, what he said and did, uh, you know, just kind of followed his example and it's interesting because then the year after he graduated St. Bonaventure won their first of consecutive state championships with the infamous Daryl Scott as running back that following fall and you know St. Bonaventure was kind of never the same after those those next two years because then they really started to get a lot of kids that would come in for like one year mercenary deals. Irby was kind of a you know a devout diehard St. Bonaventure. I think he went to Our Lady Assumption Elementary School and Middle School before he went to St. Bonaventure. So you know he was a kid that you just really rooted for, and the coaches raved about, and the players really loved him. At, at that point, when we were still a scout, uh, we were the the media partner for the All American Bowl at the time it was the Army game, and Blaine came out to the game and just. So such a good kid. I remember we were interviewing. Uh, we we do our pictures right there with the river walk in the background, and you know we we would talk about Ventura. At that point, I had just moved away from Ventura about two years before, and you know he, we would talk about just places to eat, um, you know where he'd go hang out, all that. And so just a kid that you you really liked, and having that Ventura connection made it an easy conversation. So you know the injuries were obviously devastating, and it was one of those where that injury wasn't just something that was discussed in the Texas media. I mean, it made its way back to Ventura as a discussion point because he was so revered by St. Bonaventure football and the community. Yeah, and he was, you know, like I said, was a really well-revered guy around here. Um, you know, before we kind of move on to the next thing, I, I, you beat me to the punch, but I was going to tell you, if you wanted to send twitches down the spine of, of several Texas fans that may remember old recruiting, the name Daryl Scott will, <laughs> will certainly do it. Um, what, a, what a wild story and kind of one of the first ones I remember really – I mean, like, the thing that got me into recruiting in the business was uh, Ryan Perilou, mm-hmm. like following the Ryan Perilou thing. And I, I know you were detached from that, but I'm sure you remember uh, kind of the story with him, you know, being the heir apparent to Vince Young and then flipping to LSU. And then, like, the Daryl Scott was the one where I, as a recruiting fan, was like, I'm never going to place my emotional investment in an 18-year-old kid again. Sure. Like, and I, it, was, it was smart. I, I can't <laughs> – yeah, I was like, I can't allow uh, this kid, these kids, to like make me go crazy as a fan of recruiting. You know, it's just it's it's out of my control. What are you doing? So, uh, yeah, that's a uh, quite a blast for the past. Uh, before we kind of get on to the to the end here, um, you know, I, I think fans of of recruiting have seen it enough. I mean, it was something that I saw Brandon before you and I had ever met and known each other and. Um, you know, had had a few laughs at the All American Bowl, but um, I think we've all seen the the maybe the hashtag Avery Strong. Um, of course, that that concerns your daughter um, Avery, and uh, you've got a foundation. Just kind of, I'd love for you to just talk about um, you know how that foundation came about, and and you know how people can support that cause. I appreciate that, Mike. So obviously, that foundation is very near and dear to me. In the spring of 2015. Our family, everything was normal. Everything was great. We were excited about just 
kind of where we were at as a family, everything in life. My oldest had, was wrapping up elementary school. Um, our, we had a, our son was in third grade at the time. Um, Avery was wrapping up kindergarten, and she was super excited to go to school all day, every day in the fall. And then our youngest was going to start preschool that fall. On June 30th, about three or four days before I was supposed to head down to Beaverton for the opening, uh, we took Avery in. At the time, she was a six-year-old, completely healthy girl. As far as we knew, nothing more than a stomach ache here and there. She was complaining about a vision problem she was having, so we took her to an ophthalmologist to get a to get her looked at, thinking it was just some kind of eye issue. You know, she had a lazy eye, um, and it was inverted a little bit. So we went in thinking it was just an eye issue. Thirty-six hours later, we were on our way to Mary Bridge Children's Hospital in Tacoma, Washington, uh, with the ophthalmologist doing an MRI, saying she's got a tumor. Get down to this hospital, and they'll tell you more. In that 20-minute drive, we our minds were racing, kind of going through every possible scenario, but thinking, okay, well, so, you know, tumors happen all the time. You can do a surgery. The tumor's gone. We're back to normal. It's a little setback for the summer. You know, we're good. About two hours after we got to the hospital, a doctor told us that she had a non uh, inoperable brain tumor known as diffuse intrinsic pontinglioma, um, DIPG, which was on her brain stem. And when I asked when, you know, how it was treated and, you know, she told me that there was no surgery. I said, well, then how do, you know, how, how does she deal with it? They said, well, the average time with your child from this point on will be about six months to 12 months. And went from thinking it was an eye issue that you patch the eye up, she gets some strength back in the eye, it's normal, to you're being told that in less than a year, your child's going to die. It's terminal upon diagnosis and essentially go make a lifetime of memories in as much time as you can. So she went through 30 rounds of radiation. She did uh, some infusion treatments and for seven and a half months fought this glioma and this cancerous brain tuber is about as bravely and strong as you can imagine. And then on February 16th, 2016, she passed away at the age of seven years old. So three months later, uh, after we kind of got our bearings straight after she passed away, we began the Avery Huffman Defeat DIPG Foundation, which our sole purpose is to raise funds and raise awareness specifically for cancer research uh, of this particular cancer that, that she was diagnosed with and that she fought. And we partnered with four other families, all part of the Defeat DIPG network, all lost our children to the same disease and we pulled our resources together and the Defeat DIPG Foundation is also partnered with the Chad Tuff Foundation. If you're a college football fan, you'll remember Lloyd Carr, the former head coach of the University of Michigan. His grandson, Chad Carr, also had DIPG. And so we we partnered with the, our Defeat DIPG network and the Chad Tuff Foundation has partnered the last three years to give over $2.5 million worth of grants and fellowships uh, to various researchers, various scientists uh, across the country that are are all doing major research and, and kind of some game-changing uh, research and treatment plans to, to fight this. So we uh, our foundation has been going for almost four years, maybe four years in May. Uh, we've raised seven, 750000 our, our goal was to raise a million dollars within the first five years uh, with everything going on right now. That may have to be adjusted a little bit, but our mission hasn't changed at all. So 
you know, we, we honor her story, honor her legacy. Several of my friends uh, that are in the football space have done memorial tournaments where the funds have gone to the foundation, have done camps uh, where I get to share her story, where there's an Avery Strong Award at the end, our Bravery Award. And basically, it's you know an opportunity for me to share her story with kids that were probably too young when this was first getting out there, but to share her story, but also raise awareness and raise funds for research so that no other family has to deal with the news that we were told and you know it's a passion project for me i mean we do it in addition to our full-time jobs but it's something that it's very near and dear to my heart and something that i plan to continue doing until we get some doctors saying hey we've got breakthrough and we've got a cure yeah you know i've done some some fundraiser stuff for children's cancer in the past uh i did a lot with saint baldrick's i don't know if you're familiar Mm -hmm. with uh, with that foundation, but I've done like the raise money, shave my head type of thing. And, um, you know, learning about it, just the, the, the funding for children's cancer is just not there the way that it is. And it's sad to say, but it's because, you know, the medical community doesn't have exactly, and we're seeing it now with this COVID thing, they don't exactly value young lives or old lives. They, they value the, the 18 to 54 demographic that can work and provide money. And so I think that there's a lot of those places that are underfunded. I, I know that, this like uh, this quarantine might might kind of slow your your progress with the foundation, but we'll do everything we can to help. Where can uh, any of our listeners maybe donate if they'd like to? Yeah, if you go to my Twitter, Brandon Huffman, you'll see there's a, a link on or there's a Twitter. Um, address on it avery strong dipg that's our social network on twitter instagram uh, and facebook at avery strong dipg and if you go on there you can go to our website which has a direct donation link and everything is tax deductible we're a 5013c um and you know every cent that we that we raise goes specifically to research and you know no donations too small too big we we welcome uh, anything because it's awful i mean when your diagnosis is terminal upon the you know upon the first time you hear those words it's pretty crazy and you know it allows me to put a lot of things in perspective that that five years ago i wouldn't have been able to but now given what i've been through and i understand you know we were my wife was talking to a a family last night who their daughter is 17 years old and she's fighting this particular disease and she was at seattle children's hospital there's been some outbreaks of covid at seattle children's and she's got a compromised immune system based on all the radiation and chemotherapy she's had done so you know you, you, you just become a little bit more aware of these things when you've been through a tragedy and you know it makes you want to do your part to to just prevent our story will, will never change our story our diagnosis won't ever be different than what we were given but we our hope is that somebody else's diagnosis and prognosis can be different and that's what motivates us and so you can go to Avery Strong DIPG read more about Avery you can see what kind of kid she was and you know what kind of impact she's had and you know help us fight this monster yeah, absolutely. Please, guys, go give if it's uh, if it's in your heart to do so. All right. Well, let's uh, let's end on a higher note. Um, let's go with uh, I, I when I first reached out to you. I mean, I think I generally just kind of wanted to talk about with with everybody. Hey, who's the best players you ever saw in high school? And it's kind of you know my idea was well, Huffman's a really interesting dude, so I want to ask him more questions. Um, so that's where we got the longer form interview. But the core of this was, hey, Brandon Huffman, who are some of the best players you ever saw in high school? And bonus, I know you're a West Coast guy, but for our listeners, if you ever came across a Texas guy you really liked, please throw him in there as well. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, I, I kind of have my my 
Mount Rushmore, if you will, uh, of kids, of guys that I covered. And this is just based on them as high school players. So if you take out what they did in college and you take out what they did in the NFL or what they didn't do in college, what they didn't do in the NFL, but you look at them as high school football players, you would say, man, those guys were phenomenal. Then I got a couple guys in, in there that aren't on the Mount Rushmore, but that the look you look at the body of high school, college, and NFL. Phil, they kind of would make my all-time team. Uh, so my, my Mount Rushmore has been the, the two names that are absolutely on this list no matter what were Robert Woods, who to me is probably the most dynamic two-way player to come from Southern California in the last 20 years. And he really epitomizes Los Angeles. Played at Sarah High School in Gardena, went on to USC, and then now plays for the Rams, was on their Super Bowl team. Robert Woods was just an incredible high school football player and essentially took over a CIF championship game to beat Oaks Christian. Oaks Christian had Nick Montana on that squad. They had seven or eight guys that would go on to play major college football. And that Sarah team was pretty strong too. They had a fourth string receiver named Marquise Lee. Think about that. They had Robert Woods, Paul Richardson, George Farmer. Marquise Lee was really known as a safety until Robert Woods and Paul Richardson graduated. But Robert Woods had one of the best. It was a Vince Young type of performance, but in a section championship game. Uh, so he he's on there. D'Anthony Thomas. The only reason I don't say he's the most dynamic two-way player is he didn't play as much defense as you would have thought, even though we always project him as a corner. He was the most dynamic player that I've ever seen in Southern California. I mean, remember being at the, the LA City Section Championship against Narbonne High School inside the Coliseum in December of 2009, and it was a slot fest. It was raining. It was muddy. D'Anthony Thomas broke this run that broke that game wide open, and he looked like he was shot out of the cannon. And most people, when they get stuck in mud, they're not running as fast. It was like it made him faster. He got through this mud so quick, went on for a touchdown. Crenshaw would go on to play De La Salle in the state championship game and jumped out to a 14-0 lead on two D'Anthony Thomas runs. He then sprained his ankle and came out of the game, and De La Salle bounced back to win. But that was the first time that a that a public school, an L.A. city school, had ever made the state championship game. And D'Anthony Thomas was a big reason for that. Uh, the best offensive lineman I've ever scouted, period, uh, and certainly out west, is Tyrone Smith. And I remember seeing him as a sophomore in high school at the USC Nike camp in, in the spring of 2006. Uh, Mercedes Lewis had just finished his career at UCLA, and Tyrone Smith and Mercedes Lewis looked a lot alike, but there was like a six-year gap in age between that two. And I remember my, my colleague now, Greg Biggins at the time, was with Student Sports. I'm like, hey, GB, who's that kid that looks like Mercedes Lewis? Like, huh, the kid's a sophomore. And he ended up being the, the number one offensive tackle in the country, number one offensive tackle picked, I believe, in the 2011 NFL draft. And at one point uh, was the highest paid offensive tackle in the NFL. I mean, if you would have saw him as a sophomore and just saw how athletic he was, it, it was freaky. So I, I would put him there. And then I always throw one Northwest kid on just since I've lived up here for the last few years. And Buda Baker who is a Pro Bowl safety for the Arizona Cardinals. I mean, he was on the same team with Miles Jack, who you would think was on it, but Miles Jack was even better in college than he was in high school. 
Bruder Baker was phenomenal in high school and, and just one of those guys that every time he touched the ball at Bellevue, something special happened. And I remember, you know, Euless Trinity came up to play Bellevue in 2012, and it was a pretty good Euless Trinity team. And Buda Baker, Miles Jack both basically just took over that game, uh, respectively. So Buda Baker's there. And then kind of two guys that, you know, one guy – Interestingly enough, it was when I had just moved to Washington and he was playing down in Portland. I went to a high school football game in Portland at like three o'clock in the afternoon. And they had this big old defensive lineman who you would have thought was going to get, you know, 30 sacks, 15 tackles for loss this game. He was unblockable, but really didn't have, I think he had maybe a sack and maybe one tackle for loss, but then he became a phenom in college with Ndamukong King Su. And he was one of those guys that he was really good in high school, but as a defensive lineman, you know, it was easy for him to take plays off. And I picked the one game he took plays off. Obviously, went on to college and was really good and has had a pretty solid NFL career. But in terms of a guy that I've covered over the last few years that's just been fantastic at every stop, it's been Zach Ertz. And he still to this day is the best seven-on-seven football player I've ever seen because, you know, imagine Zach Ertz, what you see now in the NFL and just his ability to get himself open and, you know, the, the end zone fades and just the different ways that the Eagles have utilized him. He was a Matthew Ward finalist at Stanford, still has probably one of the biggest catches in Stanford history, a touchdown that he caught to tie Oregon, who at the time was number one in the country and in route to play in the national championship game. Zachert scored a touchdown. Stanford ended up winning in overtime and won their first Rose Bowl under David Shaw that year. Uh, Zacherts was a phenomenal high school player, phenomenal college player, and he's been a pretty dang good NFL player. So he, he's another one, but people ask us all the time, you go to an F7 on 7 tournaments, who's the best you've ever seen? And I go back to the very, very first Pylon 7 on 7, it was still known as the Badger New Level 7 on 7, and the MVP that day was none other than Zacherts. Well, there you go. And that's the joke is that uh, I think the answer to everything I asked Huffman in in, uh, in Vegas was Zach Ertz. So uh, we had a good time there, man. I, I was uh, extremely happy to hang out with you there and spend some time, get some food. I The thing also is, Brandon, I always just say I'm fat. Brandon says we're both well-built mm-hmm. for uh, future son-in-laws. Uh, but we're both guys who are into food, so Brandon showed me some new food spots. Um, we had a great time. I can't wait uh Wait to hopefully we get out from under all this stuff, man, and 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 maybe hook up again at the uh, at the All American Bowl this year. But I want to thank you for coming on and joining me and, and spending some of your time with with our listeners here. Hey, thanks for having me on. And now you're on the hook for showing me some good eats when we're down in San Antonio. Oh, absolutely, man. We will we will definitely do that. All right. Well, for everybody listening, hope you enjoyed this. We'll be back with uh, somebody new next week, uh, and we will uh, talk to you guys later in this week with our regular podcast. It's Michael Richards here. You might have seen me on CBS working on their Champions League coverage over the last couple of years. I wanted to tell you about an exciting new podcast that I've been working on. It's called The Rest is Football. It's me, alongside Gary Lineker and Alan Shearer, two absolute legends of the game. 
The show combines topical debate from the world of soccer along with outrageous tales from our careers. And I mean outrageous. Just search The Rest is Football wherever you get your podcasts. All the best from Big Meets.